I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome Hello. to the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In each episode, we talk about our week in review, what movies or TV shows we've been watching since the last episode. Then we move on to our main event, which is a topic of discussion or a main review of a film. Then, lastly, film faves, which is our list of our favorite movies around a particular topic, often marching backward to th through time. In this episode, we will be reviewing Bradley Cooper's directorial debut, A Star is Born. Congratulations, Bradley Cooper. Yeah. And because of that, our film faves will be remakes, our favorite remakes. So we'll get into more about that later. That should be very interesting and a lot of fun. There were a lot of rules, guys. But <laughs> let's talk first about our week in review. Shanna, tell us about your week. I got to watch Murder on the Orient Express, uh, the one that got recently made, like a year, two years ago. It's now available to stream on HBO. And this felt like it was trying to be incredibly glitzy. And of course, the lighting was beautiful, the costuming was gorgeous, the makeup was stunning. And I liked the story because it's a murder on a train. It's not a spoiler because it's right there. And the Orient Express is a train, just in case no one knew because I didn't I only put it together after they said we're going to get on the Orient Express <laughs> so there we go <laughs> I, I solved that for you guys ahead of time so I like the story you guys know I love mystery mm -hmm. and Perot was obviously an inspiration for um, the Tony Shalhoub TV show that ran for about seven seasons Monk mm. you know where he's a detective Perot is a detective that makes sense and, you know, Poro is very, you know, kind of OCD. Mm -hmm. So that's why he can, he can solve things just like that. Um, and that's what Monk is. But anyway, I appreciated that about it. And I, I really had an appreciation for cell phones after this movie because, you know, this was 1920s, 30s. It's before anyone, you know, had really direct communication mm. with anyone on a global scale. And so in the beginning of the film, he starts off, I think, in Istanbul, and then he's traveling to, I think, England or something. He's mm. traveling somewhere fairly far away. And then they find him, and then they're like, no, you got to come with us. And so it's like to the other side of the world. So I just find it really interesting because all these people know about him. Mm. They know he can solve things, and so they're all coming to him. I found that some of the accents, well, let's talk about performance. Performance-wise, there, there was really nothing to write home about. I really? mean, this had awesome cast, mm -hmm. but like there was nothing special coming out of any of them. Who's uh, some examples of people in the well, cast? Well, there's Michelle Pfeiffer, and maybe she was the one that shone the most, but just because she was like a main, main, main character. Mm. You know, there's Johnny Depp. Mm -hmm. There's oh, Daisy Ridley, I believe. Yeah, and then there's oh, what is her name? Awesome person. <laughs> They're all awesome. There's Judy Dench uh -huh. for a bit. Okay. There, you know. Then there's Penelope Cruz. That's who I was thinking of. Oh, okay. Um, so you've got this fairly varied cast. Yeah. But nothing awesome came from them. They're just kind of there. They're just being there. Serviceable. They're like 
you know, we're going to get some great names and mm. we're going to put them on a train. Mm. And it's gotcha. like, oh, this, this could be exciting. Well, no, it's code for we're trying to make it exciting. Gotcha. So I was disappointed about that. Uh, but mostly I was disappointed about how forced the accents were at times. Oh. Someone was doing a German accent and maybe he is of German descent, but it really didn't feel right to me. Oh. Um, and I've been around Germans, you know, uh, during my au pair years, so yeah, that was that was interesting. So I do not recommend this movie. I recommend, I recommend you go and check out the original. It just felt like it was a glitzy remake, like a kind of a um, uh, skin deep, kind of very superficial. Superficial, yeah. yeah. Whereas like the original was, I guess we did watch it because something about this film felt familiar, mm-hmm. but it's hard to tell because this film had this story has been. What do you call it when like someone like Family Guy does it and oh parody parody and, yeah so it's been parodied to no end so uh-huh. yeah well it is like one of the most popular if not um, the best of Agatha Christie's uh, works you know she was of course a, a, a mystery novelist and several of her books were adapted into films but this is considered one of the best if not the best. Partially, not this particular one, but, Mm, you know, the original original. one. And part of it is because, you know, it's an opportunity to have a huge cast and stuff. I remember seeing the trailers and just not being thrilled about it. I remember not being thrilled about the idea of it being remade either. But let me ask you this. You know, this is a um, Kenneth Branagh film. Kenneth Branagh plays uh, Poirot. What did you think of him as Poirot, and what did you think of his direction? What did I think? I it was nothing special. I mean, it it didn't feel bad the version, but mm-hmm. it's just I'm I'm stuck on the performances. <clears throat> anyway, yeah. moving on. So then I also finished the TV show HBO's Sharp Objects. This show is quite something. I want to start by saying I highly recommend it. It stars Amy Adams, who is the oldest daughter in the family that we're going to be watching in this show. Patricia Clarkson is the mother. Eliza Scanlon is the younger sister. And Elizabeth Perkins is the aunt. And I love all these women um, for various reasons. But Elizabeth Perkins, she was in the the TV show Weeds Mm -hmm. for a couple of seasons. This show slowly unfolds through each and every episode. You really have to pay attention because the show's cinematography often plays tricks on the viewer. It makes you have to... It's You're kind of seeing it through Amy Adams' eyes, and no spoiler, she is an alcoholic. So, you know, and she's had some trauma in her life. And so those things haunt her often. And so what the cinematography is doing is it's keeping everything pretty low lit, a bit of rim light happening around, you know, figures and often does a sort of, there's like this double exposure happening. So often she'll see her younger self staring at her when she goes through her family home. She'll see her sister that she lost. And so sometimes it's difficult because it's just these flashes and so you're not sure what she's actually seen and if it's actually something that's real when you're still getting used to who the characters are, etc. The lighting is beautiful and varied going through the entire you know, season. So you're kind of starting, 
you know, there'll be these moments of light and diffused prettiness and, you know, things seem okay. And then all of a sudden, bam, it goes dark and green and it's fairly toxic. Mm. So um, the cinematography really does play a huge role in helping the story unfold here. I highly recommend watching this show. It's a nice, there's a, there's a mystery involved and she's a, gen- Amy Adams is a journalist. So she's coming to her, back to her small town to investigate what's happening so she can write about it. And there's a lot of disturbing things that happen in this series. I don't know if you would be able to get through it. But it's all very interesting in the end. Well, you know, there's self-harm happening. So body mutilation is happening. There's cutting. There's suicide happens in here. There's a bunch of different things that I'm not going to get into. Those are the only two things I'll reveal because that's established in the beginning of the first episode. Okay. But it, it, it does get disturbing, the, the way that the cinematography helps unfold the disturbing factor is very intense, but it's only, it's only like eight episodes, mm-hmm. so you really, you don't have to, you know, drudge through 15 episodes of like awful to get okay. to the end, and I highly recommend it because everything comes together beautifully in that last episode, totally satisfying. So it also portrays a re- it also portrays the theme of passiveness and the results of that decision that we make to kind of take a step back and not do anything about a situation and it's very very interesting. I'm curious. This is based on a novel by Gillian Flynn. Mm. But I you know who also did who wrote Gone Girl. Mm-hmm. You know, this is also on HBO, yeah? Yes. Yeah. I get a a Big Little Lies vibe from it, too. How does it compare to those other properties? Okay, so let's talk about... In terms of quality. Yeah. I think this is a very high-quality show. You've got great talents. You've got faces that you recognize off the bat, like Amy Adams and Patricia Clarkson. Uh-huh. You have, you know, the medium talent ground that you might be familiar with, you might not. So, like someone like Elizabeth Perkins, and then you have faces. Well, I ha- there were faces I'd never seen before, so I feel like it's a good cast. And then, you know, quality-wise, it's HBO, so you know your cinematography and all those things are going to be well put together. So performance-wise, everything's great. Uh-huh. It totally matches Big Little Lies. It totally matches Gone Girl. Story-wise, it's very interesting, and at times it is difficult. I am not familiar with alcoholism in my immediate life uh-huh. or any of those things. So I can't relate to any of those things, Uh which might be good because I'm sure if I could, it would be a trigger for me, the way that this show has been shot. Something like Big Little Lies, what I take away from that show is like, fuck yeah, girls can get together, women can get together, and they can be there for each other, and I feel so goddamn empowered right now. Okay. And then Gone Girl is kind of like this, what you're left with is like, holy shit, women be crazy. And is then, it is it like either of those? Well, I'm getting to that. And yeah. then this one is kind of like <laughs> like what I said about the passive theme. Uh-huh. This is kind of what happens if all this crazy shit all came together and you have to be the passive character. Um, so everything's going to unfold around you and then at the end of the day you're going to be left with a slap against the head because 
you know, you weren't taking control of things. Does that make any sense? Kind of. I, I guess I'm asking, is it as good and is it tonally yeah. the same? I think it's just as good. I feel like tonally it's maybe a little different because it has to be. How, how is it different tonally from those two? Well, how would you describe Gone Girl and Big Little Lies differently? I, well, Gone Girl is obviously a, a very dark thriller. Both of them are, are feminist in their natures. Some uh, One has a more sinister, perhaps, edge to it. Definitely more vicious edge to it uh, than the other. Both are very like cynical and very dark stories. Would you say that that's the same with Sharp Objects also? Yes. I feel like you're dealing with very, with very dark themes, yeah. Okay. And Big Little Lies is good because it has all these different female characters portraying different parts of what a woman can be. Uh-huh. In this one, it's dealing with a very uncomfortable depiction of the overbearing, controlling mother. Ah. But, but not like we've seen it before, okay. if that makes sense. You have to watch it to be able to understand what I'm saying here. It, so we're not talking about Carrie. No, we're not talking about Carrie. Okay. <laughs> all I can describe is it's uneasy all the time because gotcha. you're trying to figure out, well, who's the bad guy in this and who's mm. the good guy in this? Is she a bad guy? Is she a good guy? And it's between the mother... Amy Adams, the, the daughter, and then there's another daughter. Mm. And between those three women alone, never mind anything else that might be attached during other episodes, it's like, what the frick is going on here? And it's just, if you have to watch all three of those things that you just asked for comparisons with, mm-hmm. you'd have a very interesting scope of you know, female depiction in film. I, I feel like you would need serious detox with some very light comedy for a while. Like Parks and Rec! Right, and we'll get to that in a minute. So that's Sharp Objects on HBO. For my week, I only have a couple things I'm going to speak to briefly. First, I think the the cinephile laws dictate that I must speak to bicycle thieves. When you see bicycle thieves or a movie like it, it feels like you have to talk about it, especially if you have a podcast talking about movies. So I finally saw Vittorio De Sica's Bicycle Thieves, which is a huge blind spot for me. It's considered one of the greatest films of all time. It's Italian, neorealist. I think it came out in like 1946 or something like that. It's a, a film that you hear referenced from time to time. It was in the player, uh, talk, you know, featured in the player in a very key scene. Anyway, it's basically uh, about a guy who gets a job. In order to have the job, he needs to have a bike. He has to get his bike, which he had previously pawned, because they're poor, right? And he and they needed money. So he has to get his bike to do the job, and, and what happens when his bike is stolen, hmm. right? So the film is all about how one object can, your entire life can be so dependent on one object, you know, because this bike is, is required for him to be able to do his job in order to be able to get money, to be able to support his family. And without this thing, you know, and jobs are, you know, he can't get just any job, right? They're not just like all these different opportunities available. So, you know, you can't just say, well, get a different job. That's not how, uh, how it is. It's not how it's set up. So 
you know, if his bike is stolen, he needs to find that bike. He needs to hunt down the person he saw steal his bike. And that's basically the journey of the film. And, and what is interesting about it is the arc that the film goes through following this character and his increasing desperation and where that desperation ends up taking him. It's, it's you know... I, you don't really need me to say this is a fine film and <laughs> it's recommended. You know, this thing's on Criterion and, you know, again, it's canon as one of the greatest films ever made. But it is, uh, you know, worth noting that I finally did see it and uh, what it is about for those who aren't familiar with what it's about. I didn't love the film. I wasn't just absolutely blown away by it, but it is a, a film to admire for sure. That is Bicycle Thieves. And the next thing I've been seeing since our last episode was a series on Netflix called My Next Guest Needs No Introduction with David Letterman. Now, this is David Letterman's post-late night uh, or late show project. He basically retired from the late show and was asked by Netflix, hey, do you want to do something? You can do whatever you want. That's pretty cool. Um, and he's kind of like, well, like, I feel like I already did what I wanted to do, <laughs> you know? But he came up with this idea of doing an eight-episode talk show, more or less, where it's literally just him and one other person on a stage in a theater, and they're conversating. This isn't about promoting anything. It's very much the opposite of atmosphere from what you've seen him do for 34 years. And, you know... He's in retirement, so he's got a big fucking bushy beard, and he looks a lot different from what people have known him to look like. And it's actually really kind of cool and intimate and revealing, and I guess how the release schedule worked on this is usually Netflix will, like, dump, like, an entire season of something, right, when it's original mm -hmm. programming or whatever? I appreciate Netflix for that. Well, apparently in this case, like, I, of course, I'm watching it way after it's released, but I guess they released a couple episodes at a time or something like that over a period of time. What's interesting is the first couple episodes, the audience has no idea who's going to come up on stage, which I loved. I thought that actually added something kind of fresh and fun and must have been really kind of cool for the audience's perspective. But you can tell, like, as the series goes on, people actually do know who the guest is going to be in, in the episodes that they're watching, mm -hmm. which is kind of a shame because uh, I kind of <laughs> like that surprise element. Like, can you imagine, you know, you're, you're like, oh, I'm going to see David Letterman interview somebody i have no idea who it is it's so exciting. but yeah it's gonna be kind of cool you know and so the first episodes are of, of, of obama uh, oh my god okay yeah. it's not just some some actor or not necessarily singer or... the, uh, george clooney is the second episode okay. um but they go into detail talking about their careers or their lives and you know david letterman opens up and i know you know, he's definitely a guy who's had his flaws over the past several decades, and some people like him, some people don't. My dad, I know, does not like him, has never liked him. But it's interesting because you do hear him open up and reveal things about himself as a person, as a father, and, and things. And I really appreciate it and found it very fascinating. You know, he's a guy who he waited until he was in his late 50s to start a family. Just and, so you know. And he, just he, so you know. That is not going to be what's happening here. Well, here's the here. thing. He yeah. he openly regrets that. Oh, good he job, said, David Letterman. <laughs> he actually, and, you, know, okay. he, you know, I think every interview practically references his fatherhood. 
mm-hmm. at some point. And he says on more than one occasion, you know, he regrets waiting. He he had this in his head. Being on this um, stupid talk show um, was the most important thing. And he would tell his girlfriend at the time or whatever to completely put aside having a family. And he realized after um, afterwards, you know, his son's 14 now apparently, um, which he says repeatedly throughout the series. There's no secret, that's for sure. You know, he, he, you know, what he's doing now is really what life is all about. And he wishes he started it sooner. And he, at one point, openly says he would have had more than one kid, you know, if he had uh, done it sooner. Mm-hmm. So, and it's all this is going to the point that even Letterman, who is a professional and really a professional interviewer, really good at making sure that the focus is really mostly about his guest even he opens up sometimes and it becomes more conversational between he and the guest and uh i've i've seen all uh, there's a bonus episode with jerry seinfeld i haven't seen that yet but i've seen all but one the one i didn't watch was jay-z uh, there's obama there's george clooney tina fey howard stern and a couple others i'm forgetting right now and I highly recommend checking it out. My next guest needs no introduction. I look forward to more episodes being loaded on Netflix. Well, so I have a question. Because yeah. David Letterman is opening up about his personal life and something that is kind of something that you can sort of relate to in your own way, uh-huh. does that change how you want to go about things? Because usually, I ask this because usually when I see something like this and I'm like, oh, I can totally relate to that. Oh, they have a good point. I was thinking of doing it ABC way, but they're doing it as a one, two, three. I'm going to strongly consider doing it that way. Like, does that change the way you want to handle things? Well, I don't want to get into too much detail about my own personal life and details, but I will say that his situation is far different from and more privileged than my situation. So there are things that he can do that and, and could have done for a long time that he could have afforded to do financially and, and all that. That is much more challenging and difficult in my situation. So Fair enough. I, I could see differences in how things between our situations. So yes and no. And, and our motivations are, are different as well, too, I would say. So anyway... Definitely check that out on Netflix. Uh, I highly recommend it. So, Shanna, now there's a couple things that we saw we could talk a little bit about. Uh, you decided you wanted to try out Parks and Recreation. Parks and Rec, as yes. the kids call it. The kids. Um, yeah. The it, kids. Which was an NBC show <laughs> that ran for seven years, seven By seasons. By kids, you mean the people that got to watch it laugh. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, at this point, right? It ran, I believe, from 2009 to about, like, 2005, 2006. Or, sorry, 2015, 2016. And you want to see it. And so we have gotten through season two so far of it. And what did I say before we started watching? Do you remember? Uh, no, but I feel like it's... Why don't you, t- why don't you tell us? I said, okay, <laughs> we can. I absolutely love the show. But... We have to just just get through season one. Yes, I don't, think it's... Don't judge it based on season one. I think it's important to note that I was listening to an NPR episode, uh, Fresh fresh Air episode, mm-hmm. where they were interviewing the character that plays 
the the actor that plays Ron Swanson. Oh, Nick Offerman. Yeah, so he was on there, and they played a clip from Box and Rick, mm-hmm. and I was laughing so hard in the car, which, you know, when you're commuting for like two hours, mm. you know, it's it's really helpful if you can laugh. So I was like, okay, you know what? I, I like Amy Poehler. I, let's try it. And I'm, you know, this show came out when I was still living in South Africa, and I think I saw an episode or a piece or something and I looked at this and I thought, what fucking American tripe? So uh, none of it made sense to me. And so I just never bothered mm-hmm. again. And now I've been living in the United States for seven years. And now watching it, I, I, everything actually makes sense. Okay. It didn't make sense before because I, I don't even know what kind of park system exists in South Africa. I don't know how it works. But I certainly didn't know how the American system worked. And at least now, being here, I know how things work. Mm-hmm. And everything makes more sense. And, you know, it's not just going over my head. I have to understand what's going on, like what's yeah, going yeah, referenced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. And so, you know, moving beyond that, uh, I'm glad I waited. Because now I really appreciate the show and I laugh a lot. Really? <laughs> it makes me really happy. Yeah. So once we get through the show, I'll probably listen to it on my commute. I like to listen to TV shows on my mm. commute and hide my phone so that I'm not tempted to look at it. What Safety sort of, first, ladies and gentlemen. What sort of things have you liked about the show so far? I really like Ron Swanson. Mm-hmm. Even when he's being a dick, it's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. it's, <laughs> and it's nice that at some point he gets kind of put in his place. He tries to push one character to push something through, some sort of permit for his his tool shop. Oh, um, yes, yes. But, Mark Van Danowitz or yeah, whatever. Yeah. But, that, but that character pushes back and is mm-hmm. like, no, we're not going to do that. And right. He, he, like, actually pouts like a three-year-old. Right. Boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's great. Because Ron, to, to explain, is not in favor of any government regulation. He wants to make changes to his workshop, but he needs to uh, get permits to mm-hmm. make these changes. And it's upon inspection... It's discovered basically his his workshop is a death trap, and yes. and he's totally fine with it. <laughs> he has his own code, his own rules, and he he goes through it, uh, some changes. It's 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 it is quite funny. Yeah, and I love um, Amy Poehler. You know, she's yeah. got all the women that she admires framed in picture frames around her office. And I'm like, I need to do that. Yeah. Why am I not doing that? Right. You need and to get then, one of her. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was, it was really, I'm really enjoying it. And the characters are really silly. A season Zari's character still irritates me. One of the, uh, what, what's the young, the young one? The intern. Which, oh yeah. Aubrey Plaza. Um, At first, she irritated me, and then I like, oh, okay, no, no, you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> like, so some characters grow on you, mm-hmm. and others have not yet. So yeah, it's it's very interesting watching the show, and I enjoy it. It's going to be very interesting seeing how the characters evolve and how you feel about the characters as they evolve. Because, like, for example, Donna. Donna practically didn't oh exist God, in season one. I love Donna so right? much. In season one, though, she practically didn't exist. Mm-hmm. She had a couple shots, and she looked fairly different. She had glasses. She was a very, like, 
I don't even think she had a speaking part, if I remember correctly. I don't think so. But in season two, they actually make her a character, right? And, you know, and she is a character, that's for sure, right? I think my favorite episode so far is the hunting episode. Yes, yes. <laughs> because of all of them. So but mostly for, because of her. Now, that's an important episode, too, because... So, in that episode, everybody goes off on this uh, retreat that's usually for men. Usually with Mark and Ron and Larry, right? But the entire office ends up going, except for uh, the intern, whose name is escaping me for some stupid reason, but she's played by Abra Plaza. And she has to call a number and be on hold so that way she can perform some sort of task having to do with numbers. I can't remember exactly what it is, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. she's on hold all day. But that episode is where... She first has any time and any connection with Andy, played by now Hollywood movie star Chris Pratt. Oh, yeah. Right? Now, how is it watching Chris Pratt in this series for you after now having, you know, pretty much familiarized yourself with him through Guardians of the Galaxy and a couple other movies? So I knew he was in Parks and Rec uh-huh. because, you know, I had, you know, you'd see adverts for the show. Um, so I knew he existed there first, uh-huh. pract- you know, technically speaking. I think it's fun to see him. I- I'm always happy to see him, as long as he's being, you know, funny. Yeah. But it wasn't weird seeing him now being a, a dumpy, sh- uh, goofy, clumsy schlub after... It is funny seeing him dumpy. Yeah. I'm wondering how he feels about life compared to, like, Parks and Rec versus uh-huh. Guardians life, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I wonder... How he feels about his routine right so yeah 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 so that's a fun show and uh we'll talk more about that when we get further along uh, what i can't believe is how much happens in season two what i didn't realize was a that hunting episode happens and b rob lowe is introduced and oh gosh that's like and uh who, who's uh who's rob lowe introduced with um, he's in big little lies right Adam Scott. Oh, I like him. Adam Scott gets introduced in season two. I was very surprised by that. But also, there's a character who's a friend of Aziz Ansari's character. A friend of Tom Haverford. Um, his name is, like, Jean Raphael. And his name he's played by Ben Schwartz. John Raphael. He is so obnoxious and just wait, love, till you meet his sister. So it's going to be uh, fun and exciting, for sure. That's Parks and Rec. You can find it on Netflix. Lastly, for our Week in Review, we saw Eight Men Out, which is the 1988 film, I believe, directed by John Sayles, uh, starring John Cusack and David Strathairn and D.B. Sweeney, and also uh, another Guardians of the Galaxy uh, star Michael Rooker, mm-hmm. among many others. This is about the the Black Sox from what 1919, I believe. It's 1919, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so called because they're the Chicago White Sox, and they supposedly fixed their World Series season. Oh, um, I, I thought it wasn't a question. I thought it was established that that's what they did. Well, some did, some didn't, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Right? 
So, Jenna, this this movie became of interest uh, uh, to you because you are a big fan of Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams! Which there is, are no rules, yeah. Which is a movie I showed you a few years back from 1989. Came out the year after 8 Men Out did. What did you think of 8 Men Out learning a little bit about the actual team that's represented in Field of Dreams and learning about their context? Um... So I think that if anyone has not seen these two films, it might be cool to do Eight Men Out and then watch Field of Dreams. Totally, absolutely. That would be so freaking freaking cool. Yeah. So I, I found the f- the actual film quite boring. Um, I didn't find it like exciting, but I guess it's not supposed to be like an exciting, thrilling thing. No, it's uh, not. It's baseball, so I have a very hard time with baseball. I, it's like. Baseball is the kind of thing where if my kid ever came home and said, I want to do baseball, I'd say, and I'm, I'm having nothing to do with it. Really? Yeah, no, no, that is the one sport where I will be like, don't expect anything from me. You wouldn't even want to go nope. to a Mariners game or nope. a Rainiers game? You know what? If it means, like, spending time with you, that's fine. But, I mean, if my kid wants to do baseball. Right. Like, no. Not so spending I time have, with the kid. <laughs> no, no we're not, I'm not doing it in that way. I'll come... <laughs> I might come pick you up. <laughs> okay. Organize your own ride. Um, so I have a hate-love relationship with baseball. This movie, the cast was really interesting, and I enjoyed them. Okay. That was my favorite part of this film. Okay. Um, I like quite a few of the actors that were in it. So It's a pretty darn good cast. I, yeah. I didn't mention before, Christopher Lloyd's in it, John Mahoney, who recently passed away, is in it, and Charlie Sheen as well. A young Charlie Sheen. When Charlie Sheen was good. <laughs> yeah, I really <laughs> like Christopher Lloyd. I feel like we don't see him enough. Not enough outside of Back to the Future, especially back then. Um, yeah. I really love David Strath- Strathairn. Strathairn, yeah. Strathairn. I feel like we don't see enough of him either. Yeah, he, he plays the pitcher of the team, the lead pitcher mm-hmm. of the team, Eddie uh, Cacciotti, I believe. Cacciotti? I don't know how to pronounce these words. Oh yeah, and something else about the film is it wasn't it wasn't very clear to me what was going on. Like I had to ask you a lot of questions afterwards. I feel like it wasn't clear enough what the proceed proceedings were, what their next part of the process was going to be. It was just at times it was confusing because I didn't know where we were in the process, and I felt like a little more information would have been helpful, like maybe some newspaper slideshow clippings or. So something like that. Well, I was really surprised to hear you say that because everything that you basically would want to help you understand what's going on actually happens in the movie. Like, there are newspaper headlines, and they do, like, set up and talk about um, the league versus uh, the um, the actual criminal perce- uh, hearings and stuff like that. Well, and you can say that that happens, but it wasn't clear to me. Hmm. And maybe it's because I, I didn't grow up all my life with baseball. Mm. Maybe that's why. Interesting. Interesting. So that was Eight Men Out, which I think we rented on Amazon, if I'm not that's mistaken. That's true, yes. Yeah. IMDb says you can watch now with with Prime, but I'm pretty sure it's not through Prime. So now let's move into our main, review. main event, which is our review of A Star is Born. Maybe it's time to let the old ways down. Maybe it's time to let the old ways down. It takes a lot to change, man. 
always knew like you were gonna do something, that you'd be all right. It's the first time I'm worried about you. Can I ask you a personal question? Okay. Tell me something, girl. Do you write songs or anything? I don't sing my own songs. Why? I just don't feel comfortable. Why wouldn't you feel comfortable? Almost every single person has told me they like the way I sounded, but that they didn't like the way I look. I think you're beautiful. Hey. What? I just want to take another look at you. In all the good times, I find myself longing for Jane. Here's what we're going to do. Come sing that song that I love. No, I can't do that. Here you go, here we go. Look at me. All you Don't you just love that part where he's like playing with her nose and he says that she has this wonderful nose. And if you look at both of their noses, they kind of have the same nose. So of course he thinks it's gorgeous. Right, right, right. <laughs> like sees a bit of himself in her. Okay, so let me set this up a little bit here first. Uh, so A Star is Born, directed by Bradley Cooper, starring... Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga and Sam Elliott uh, primarily when we review a film we like to talk about what we like about a movie first what was the good before we move into the bad what didn't work or what we didn't like about a movie then we talk about spoilers which basically in most cases is anything after the first 20 minutes of a movie or wasn't revealed in a trailer and our final thoughts now a Star is Born is not an original story, hence our film faves segment about remakes. This is the fourth version of this story. It has been previously remade, or previously made in the past, in 1937, starring Frederick March. In 1954, starring Judy Garland and James Mason. And in, 19, in the 1970s, I think 1974, if I'm not mistaken, with Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson. Now, I think it's really important for us to start out by kind of talking about our entry point going into this. Myself, I have only seen one version of A Star is Born previously. I saw the 1954 Judy Garland version and... I saw the restored version. There was a premiere edition that was like three hours, four minutes long. Then there was the general release version, which was two hours, 34 minutes long. 
And eventually in the 90s, there was a restored edition where the footage that was missing and had gone damaged from that premiere mostly was restored short of four, or sorry, seven minutes or something like that. So I had seen that version. I haven't seen the others. But the Barbara Streisand version with Chris Christopherson, which is the first to change its focus on music from Hollywood, is reputed to be pretty bad. Shanna, have you seen any of these other versions? I have not, but I laughed hysterically when I saw the poster with Barbara Streisand because you always see that poster and I never know what it's from. Is it the one yeah. where they're naked and kissing? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's like such a passionate poster. And so I never understood what it was. And, it, you know, Barbara Streisand, she's interesting. But, you know, I never need to see her, what she's doing. I'm just not drawn to her. And so it was really funny discovering, oh, it's that poster. Mm, gotcha. <laughs> I'm sure if other people, you know, go and look it up, they'll know what I'm talking about. So you had you came into this with zero familiarity with the story. Yeah, and I have no idea. Okay, and for me, I had a vague familiarity. It's been many years since I saw that Judy Garland version. Uh, I knew it was a rise and fall story, basically, kind of paralleling two, two people in a, who happened to also be in a relationship, right? Shanna, going into it the way you did, what did you like about the movie? Well, I liked... That there was a dog, and the dog did not die. Uh-huh. So. Okay. Now that I put that out of the way. Uh-huh. Um, I really loved the, the trailer for it, and I really mm-hmm. had high hopes for it. Yeah. And I really liked that the movie delivered. Um, and I liked going in knowing nothing about it. Mm-hmm. Knowing nothing about the story. And then it was only when we were driving to the theater that you said, oh, it's like parallel stars. Uh Yeah, I thought it was important to prepare you, just in case, because I remember there being being a certain degree of hitting rock bottom. Yeah. And I I wanted you to steel yourself for that in case it got really heavy. So, what I liked about this film was, I mean, you felt, as a viewer, you felt everything that they were feeling. And between the two of them you kind of got a sense of what it's like to be a human. So, especially a creative human in any art industry, people can relate to this. You know, you feel really high and electric. You feel like you're kind of making it through. You feel like you're stopping yourself. You're putting your own barriers up. You feel jealous of others and their happiness and success. You, All the range of emotions that you'll ever feel as an artist were all depicted in this film. Hmm. And that's really important because I, I feel like it's a good reminder that if an opportunity comes up, which is what she ran into, you see it in the trailer, that you should take it. And you don't know where it's going to lead, but you should take it anyway. And that's kind of part of being human, no matter what kind of career you have, too. You should mm. see where an opportunity is going to take you. You should see where love is going to take you. I really love this film. Okay. So I think I answered your question. Yeah. I think I came to this originally. I heard about the project actually being made. I, I, I knew about the early production where Beyonce was going to be a part of it. And, you know, that evolved to Lady Gaga and actually it's starting to shoot and stuff. And I remember thinking, 
Why? I am so not interested. They already made this movie three times. Why do it again? And I, I just, it just was pointless to me. Like, especially since we had the Judy Garland version. I remember, well, it wasn't a movie I absolutely loved. It was a damn good movie. It was one that you could appreciate. And any Judy Garland fan should definitely seek out if they haven't and they could like, right? But I went from absolutely having zero interest in this movie to the pre the weeks leading up to its release really highly anticipating this film i think it came up in our fall movie preview mm -hmm. as a movie that we were both looking forward to yeah and that feeling just escalated as the release came closer and closer for me and uh, i think part of it is i started hearing the music in the trailers right seeing the trailers and and the buzz around it was pretty high and pretty positive so i was really looking forward to this there's a lot i like about this movie i don't know that i love the movie i think i do like it better than the judy garland version uh -huh. but bear in mind the judy garland version's almost an hour longer you know oh, so please, no. i don't need to no you know there's that and even this one is almost too long but what I, I like about it is, first and foremost, the performances. Bradley Cooper, he takes on this low, grisly kind of voice, you know? And <laughs> it, it, so it totally works. You try to do it. <laughs> right? It, but it totally works. You know, he's got this beard. He's got this um, long, scraggly hair. You know, he's this southern rocker kind of guy uh, in the vein of Leonard Skinnerd. You know, which I know is a band, and I just made it sound like I was a person. But at any rate, you know, style-wise, is very similar. Only for today, he is really, really good. You know, the guy—the first moment we see him, he's taking drugs, right before hitting the stage, mm -hmm. right? Sets that character With up. With alcohol. Right. Exactly. Right. Sets that character up immediately. Yeah, they kind of you know? waste no time. No. In this film. No. He in no way is melodramatic in his performance. He, um, he hits the notes very well, just as you need to. He's not overwrought with it. Um, he, plays, he plays it very well. Lady Gaga is incredible in this film. She gives such a, a tremendous performance. We all know that she could sing, you know? And, and boy, can she in this movie, right? Mm -hmm. her, her songs, her vocal performances are incredible in this movie, right? Even when the songs aren't, right? Yeah. But her acting abilities, you know? I would not fault anyone for being really skeptical about her ability to, to act, right? Because they know her as this visual or uh, musical performer right mm -hmm. and it's one thing to be able to put on a show it's one thing to be able to be theatrical it's another to be able to actually give a very human and very like down-to-earth and normal performance mm -hmm. right and she really nails it just tremendous performance in this film uh let's see 
other things I really like is Cooper's direction. You know, this is his this is his directorial debut, and man, he does an excellent job. Part of one of the things that that helps is he went out and he hired one of the cinematographers of Darren Aronofsky, who did Black Swan. This is a cinematographer, and he did uh, Rick William for a Dream. So. He got somebody who's got an eye for doing stage performance and lighting and uh, pointing the, the camera and, 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 and composing in certain ways. The stage performances are, are electric, mm -hmm. you know, in the most literal and well, well, in the figurative sense, you know, perfect for what they are. They don't feel artificial. You know, they feel like you're actually at a concert, uh, which is really great. But also in those scenes where it's just the two of them either having a fight or together or whatever, it also feels really like closed in and intimate, right? You feel like you're privy to a relationship, right? Yeah. So uh, his direction is is really, really good first step. It's, it's very impressive. A couple other things I like are really kind of more uh, spoiler stuff. I won't get into right now, but Shanna, was there anything you didn't like about the movie? Oh, well, I mean, I agree with everything that you liked. I, I will say that I feel, you know, expanding upon what I said a, a minute ago, I feel like every single step they made in this film, no choice was made haphazardly. Mm. No choice seemed accidental. It all seemed very planned mm -hmm. because every single element that makes up a movie in this particular movie was incorporated to help move the story along. But it doesn't feel calculated either. You no, know? it's it's a very natural mm -hmm. unfolding. Yeah. But if you go back and you think of it in an analytical way, you will see that it was entirely planned, you know. I think I know what you mean. I think I know what you mean. Yes. So I have a deep appreciation for that. The The film was very, very well made. Mm-hmm. I love the performances. I, I feel like Lady Gaga could, you know, relate to this character in a lot of ways. Mm. Uh, because she has, you know, said in interviews, you know, when she signed up to do the pop and, and all of, you know, all the music that she had to do. Um, and they would say, oh, we need you to dress sexy. And she'd be like, well, I'm going to do it in a really funny, creative way. And that she did. We still need to watch her documentary to get a better grasp of her. But anyway, I, I really enjoyed a lot about this film. Anything that I didn't like? I can't really think of anything that I didn't like. Was there anything you didn't like? A couple things. One of the biggest things is really something that we have to get into in spoilers but one thing i can say is while there are a couple really strong songs songs that have been stuck in my head during the course of the day i would say half of the songs in this movie are forgettable i think that's done on purpose though don't you think i don't know that that's necessarily the case because i'm not just talking about some of the songs that ali does mm. And you know what I mean when I say that, right? Yeah. You know what I'm referring she becomes, to. Without, I was becomes this little pop princess type thing. Well, I wasn't going to say it because I didn't want to. I didn't want to go there yet. But there's other songs too that aren't of that style that I feel are. I, I can't remember them. You know, songs that they wrote together 
you know, that I don't remember. I, I don't. This isn't a movie where every single song is memorable, right? They're not all showstoppers. I think it's also important to understand, like, you know, you go into this thing in this uh, this as a musical, but it's not in the musical in the sense of like other Judy Garland type movies, like Meet Me in St. Louis or you know whatever, where you know, there's your traditional song and dance. This is. This is more in the vein of 2007's Once, right? Where the musical actually comes from people making songs together and performing on stage and, you know, the... In the recording studio. Right, that too. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this is... The, the movie almost stops sometimes for a musical uh, concert performance, what have you, you know? Not like it's a, it's a musical fantasy where... All of a sudden, reality alters, and people are all seeing the same song and <laughs> this dancing. This is no right? La La Land. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly, right. And I and I like that aspect of it, you know, because I'm a big fan of Once, right. Yeah. And so I really like how you know we have this kind of musical drama aspect going on. But uh, but in terms of what I don't like, it is unfortunate that this is not like a knock it out of your park album. You know, where every song is like, oh, you know, one you absolutely love and remember forever. There are two or three key songs that will stick with you. And it might even depend on the person which one which one gets attached to you. You know what I'm saying? You know, which one appeals to you more. But more more stuff to go into in, in spoilers, I think. Do you have any, any thoughts or any other things you wanted to share about the movie before we move on? I highly recommend it. I think I think people should go watch it. I think this is going to be one of those movies that's definitely going to hit the awards circuit strong. And we'll see what happens with the other like dozen movies coming out in the yeah. next couple months. I have a feeling it's going to be one of those movies that I'm going to not want to win. <laughs> Things like Picture of the Year. Not because I hate it. I really like it. But um, I no, feel like there's a couple it, yeah. things that hold it back just a little bit. But one of the things that is that I, I absolutely think is is worthy of award consideration 100% is Lady Gaga's performance as as best actress. And she really is like the lead in in the movie and the star of the movie. And boy, she is more than capable uh, without a doubt. Congratulations, Lady Gaga. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move on to spoilers for A Star is Born. Okay, Shanna, I have a few thoughts, but do you want to go first on any spoiler stuff? I guess I could. Are we going to start with a negative and then move back to the positive? Because that's always nice. Whatever you want. Let's go with Let's go with a positive sandwich. So we'll go negative first and then positive. All right. So I did not like the manager. Okay. The manager was just incredibly mean all the time. It, it definitely, you know, we've got a lot of talk about suicide prevention and looking at the signs of suicide in loved ones. And I feel like the manager was the reason, like the, the tipping, like the cherry on top for Bradley Cooper to commit suicide. And right. maybe you didn't want me to jump straight into that, but I feel like that's really important to talk about. Um, you know, you get a while ago we had a lot of people saying 
you know, doing posts on Facebook, tell me, you know, reach out to me and I'll be there for you. This was a good depiction of how people who have suicidal tendencies or, or have it in their mind, why they might not reach out to you. And I think that Bradley Cooper did it justice in his performance. But uh, so I understand the manager's purpose in the story, but at the same time, I didn't like it. Well, okay, so there's a couple of things here. Uh, first of all, let's be clear. The manager's actions, which uh, let's just say he comes to visit Jackson, Jackson Maine, that's Bradley Cooper's character, unbeknownst to Lady Gaga's character, Allie, to basically uh, tell him how he's ruining Allie's career. And Jackson just came out of rehab. He's kind of in a fragile state where he needs he needs support. He needs positivity, and he he's getting that. He's working on getting better, and you can see that he's on his, on his way. But something like this visit is enough to really shatter his self esteem and 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 send him over the edge, right? And it does. Now the other thing about this is if this follows very much in in the vein of the Judy Garland and Janet Gaynor versions of the star is stimulate character comes says something to the male character previously played by James Mason or Frederick March that character commits suicide in those versions he drowns himself right in this version he uh, hangs himself now one of the things I I like about this movie is how it takes elements of the different versions, right? Because in the Barbara Streisand version, the Chris Christopherson character, he doesn't he, he doesn't actually kill himself. He goes driving to pick up somebody at an airport, and he's a little reckless in his driving, and he has an accident. Well, in this version, Jackson gets in a tr uh, vehicle. He's supposed to go to Allie's concert to perform. And he stops, and he gets out. You know, it's a little, like, subtle nod to the Barbra Streisand version. Mm. And then he ends up killing himself, but in a different way than what you see in the other versions, right? So getting back to that issue with the manager, I have an issue with it myself because I feel like the, the manager sticks around and is involved with Allie and her career as long as he is only because the plot needs him to, right? The purpose of the manager is to eventually get to Jackson killing himself. That's the purpose of that character, right? But that, that manager character, he's, he comes into conflict with Allie a few times. He does some things says some things he's really the one that's driving her into this pop stardom direction which is very much different and kind of the opposite of where she started with jackson which was you know sitting down playing on the piano or, or standing at the mic singing very stripped down vocal uh performances right not high gloss high production dance moves all that sort of stuff right which is what he turns her into. And he wants to change her hair color. He wants to add the dancers. He adds the dance routine. He's created an image, right? And you see that Allie is not a fan of everything he suggests. 
So you kind of wonder, going throughout the movie, like, why doesn't she just fire his ass? You know? He's clearly kind of a dick. And he's not really taking her input into account of what she wants to be, what she wants to do. Uh, The problem is you don't have established in the movie their relationship. Like, what is keeping her with uh, this manager instead of firing him and getting someone else to represent? So that's the issue I have with the manager character. He, he exists, and he's still in Allie's life because the plot needs him to. That's really my biggest issue with the whole, with the whole movie at all, aside from the, a couple of the songs not being all that memorable. Does it ruin my, my um, enjoyment of the movie? No, it's actually really one of those things where on the drive home I think about it and realize eh, that's, that's, that's definitely an issue. But Shanna, you cried how many times while watching the movie? I'd say about four, maybe five. Yeah, it seemed that way. So this movie definitely connected with you emotionally. Yeah. Right? I'm going to try not to cry now. Okay. <laughs> While we talk about this. Now, the interesting thing is, the movie did not, to me, for the most part. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it affected me and it didn't affect you? Or why do you think it didn't affect you? Well, you know, it may be as simple as what you had articulated earlier before about being creative and being able to relate in certain ways. And, you know, that's definitely not me. But, you know, I was reminded of my feeling of watching the Judy Garland, A Star is Born, where it's definitely a movie where I, I appreciated, I liked, but I didn't necessarily emotionally connect with it. And I was thinking about this mm. uh, in the final minutes of the movie where Allie goes on stage and she's given this beautiful performance and thinking wow okay so you know I think this is near the end of the movie I like this movie I just did not connect um, I'm not like completely 100% tripping over myself and then all of a sudden the last 30 seconds of the movie happen and this is a real testament to how important editing can be and how editing can have an effect on your experience of a movie you have this performance by gaga on stage right which is reminiscent of the robert streisand version and she's giving a wonderful performance right Mm -hmm. but then all of a sudden the film cuts to bradley cooper who, Mm -hmm. who at this point is dead but a scene that existed previously where bradley cooper is playing on piano and he's singing the song and she's just watching him and crying because she's just moved by his performance of this song. And I am moved because that is a brilliant, brilliant editing choice to, to cut like that. It is extremely potent uh, moment. And then it cuts back to just, when the song's over, it cuts back to uh, Allie's face and then goes dark. Those 30 seconds, man... That is, I wouldn't call it a gut punch per se, but it really is a very affecting moment in the film. Did that edit affect you as well? Well, you're talking about it, and I'm already tearing up, so (laughs) (laughs) I guess it did. Yeah, the technical. You know what I said earlier about each and every step that they took was meaningful to the storytelling, even their editing was meaningful yeah yeah it totally had an effect on me 
Actually, most of her performances had an effect on me. When she did her first song, I cannot talk like this. This is irritating me me so much. (laughs) When she did her first performance with Bradley Cooper, you could definitely tell from an artist's perspective, and maybe people can tell, that you know, people that that aren't artists can tell too. You know, we put ourselves in these boxes and we create these fears, Mm -hmm. and you could tell in that moment that she just dropped them down completely and she just embraced it and you're talking about the very first uh time that she's invited on stage yes yeah she definitely like steals herself and you know kind of composes herself just kind of goes out there but when she hits that like high note i i don't know technical right i don't know jargon sure uh for this but when she hits that that like like high moment uh-huh. in the, in her performance yeah like i just burst into tears because mm. it was so relatable Mm. Yeah. Just one other th- last thing that I feel is spoilery because it, it exists outside the first 20 minutes of the movie and I kind of appreciated not knowing going into it. Uh, Andrew, Ga- Andrew Dice Clay plays Allie's dad. Andrew Dice Clay, of course, is a comedian chiefly from the 80s and 90s, very brash, very macho, kind of a dick. He's not that here. Uh, he's almost unrecognizable because he doesn't have his dark black hair. Yeah, seen him in a decade or so, maybe. Um, he's in, clearly in his mid-60s, and he's past his prime and stuff. It, it, you know, the, the character is, obviously, too. And he has his own kind of history, kind of brush with fame sort of thing that he, he talks about periodically through the movie. But I was really, really taken with his supporting performance, and I, I would, I would go so far as to give him a nomination for his supporting performance in the film. Did it make um, you emotional? No, I, <laughs> but I, I really liked him in in it. You know, I, I was very, I found him somewhat endearing and somewhat touching in the film. You know, um, he's so supportive of his daughter in a way. He doesn't necessarily think at the beginning of the film that she's going to ever have. Uh, you know the the good luck of going anywhere with her talent but he believes that that's the case for a lot of people who are truly talented and and a lot of people who aren't truly talented just get brushed with that luck and so but when she is he's he just he's so proud of her he's beaming it's a really really cute moment when they're uh watching the video together on the, the YouTube, phone yeah yeah and when he's with his other people his co-workers and they're talking about that means that's the algorithm and so what's <laughs> the, an algorithm views, yeah it's like, yeah oh, that's how many views there are that's how many people like it yeah. it's just really stinking cute yeah I, so i really liked him and dave Chappelle has a scene or two in the movie not entirely the most important scenes in the, in the film although it does get the relationship to a certain place he's really nice and lovely in the, the film best too. friend yeah mm-hmm. okay yeah that was um i wanted to say that what was really cool about this relationship that they had it was it was it was really explosive uh-huh. and really beautiful even though there was you know alcoholism involved yeah and stardom life i assume i i just I felt like it was nice to see because mm-hmm. most of the time if we see this like explosion of love it's it, it's kind of cheesy in the way that they do it right but this right. was done in somewhat an authentic way yeah it feels it feels real feels grounded yeah sometimes their fights were really interesting too they they felt really real but then yes 
Lady Gaga's character, Allie. Allie, she was just amazingly strong. Oh and yeah, you you were almost instantly in love with this character. I was like, I want to be her. Right. <laughs> like, she sets up the expectations that she has of people around her. Mm-hmm. Well, at at least with him, she didn't do this for her manager. Right. But I'll, I'll just ignore that. <laughs> Again, because the plot needed her <laughs> yeah, not to. Yeah, the plot yeah. needed it. You know, she says to him, you will not be drinking if you do that again. I'm not going to be there for you again. Right. Or, or whatever. Well, to be fair, she does actually say things to the manager. That's where the conflict between the two of them come. That, that is why I find it inexplicable that she's still with the manager. Oh, he gotcha. wants to change her hair to blonde. She's like, I'm not blonde, you know. Yeah. Which is kind of cool that she tries speaking up to her manager, too. And you know what happens? They go red. <laughs> but anyway, I think one of... You know, the fights are really realistic, too. You know? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're not shit, pleasant. Shit gets said, and yeah. it's uncomfortable. Right. But one of my it favorite is. moments in this film, when they were fighting, yeah. is when she's getting somewhere, and he's kind of jealous, or he doesn't right, really know how right. to deal with it. Whatever right. emotion he's I think, he's isn't it the Grammy Award she gets nominated? No, that's not the one I'm talking about. That no, was no, no. the really uncomfortable That's the one. really uncomfortable one. But right. the one where she gets a record deal, I guess. The manager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's when the manager, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he takes, like, a creamy donut and, like... It's like a bagel with cream cheese, yeah. He, like, shoves it on her face. Yeah. Really mean, but really yeah. playful too. He's like testing the boundary kind of thing. Yeah. And she looks at him and she's still, she's just so fucking in love with him. But then at the same time, she's like, oh, you want to play? Okay. Uh, yeah. We'll play. And yeah. <laughs> you see him in the background. He was about to like, they were about to bullhead each other. Yeah. Physically. And <laughs> she walks away to go close the door. Yeah. While she's saying this and he wraps it to the TV. Right. And it's just... I was like, no, no, don't go. I want to see what happens. Right. Yeah, because it cuts away, basically. (laughs) I want to see what happens. So I I really loved, like, if we had a a movie list, you know, about uh, relationships, like the Band-Aid couple, the movie Band-Aid, that couple's always going to be like, and only lovers left behind. Left alive. Left alive. Those are like my top two, but like this couple falls into top three. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, did you have any final thoughts uh, about A Star is Born? No, other than just loving Lady Gaga's character mm-hmm. and all the things I've already said. That's all I got. So the good definitely outweighs the bad for you? Yeah. Uh, scale of uh, 1 to 10? Maybe like um, seven and a half, eight. I'm, I'm okay. somewhere in between. That's very interesting. Yeah, I, I'm not too different, interestingly enough although i do think you like them definitely like the movie more than me i would say that the good definitely outweighs the bad there's really not a whole lot to criticize this movie just really one character's role primarily in the film uh, i wish was developed more uh, i would give the film a seven out of uh, ten uh, but i really liked it i definitely recommend uh, the film and I recommend going back and rewatching the other versions of A Star Is Born. More, more uh. in particular, the 1937, 1954 versions, if you can find them. But I do think that this may actually, this definitely rivals uh, at least the one I've seen, the 1954 version, which is no small feat. It's uh, that's a great film. So uh, check this one out for sure. That's A Star Is Born. Shanna, now it's time for film faves. Here we go. Now. 
Film Faves is a segment that was uh, inspired by a feature I used to do at the, the Gibson Review where I would count down 12 favorite films around a particular topic, usually and often marching back through time. Now, the purpose of Film Faves is not only to give you an idea of our tastes in movies, but also to hopefully expose you to things you haven't seen or heard of before. And to that point, we try to point you in the direction of where you can stream them, primarily at Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, and HBO Now. That is always the case, uh, unfortunately, but we do try to help you out when that's the case. This episode, we focused on remakes. Now, this was interesting. There are a lot of remakes out there, right? To the point where people are like, oh, why remake a movie? You know, they always want to remake the good movies and it's always shitty, that sort of thing, right? In order to really get at this, we first tried focusing on, first of all, there's a lot of movies that are based on books and a lot of movies where there's different versions of movies based on the same novel, right? 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is one. Oliver Twist is another. You know, there's there's a whole bunch of movies like that, right? Where it's not remaking the movie, it's just another adaptation of a book. So we had to discount as much of that as possible for this list. I could Christmas Carol. Right, because what is that? That's not a remake of A Christmas Carol the movie. It's the Muppets goofing on the book, right? By Charles Dickens. Okay. Right? Same thing with Muppet <laughs> Treasure Island of I really Robert wanted, Louis. I really wanted that one. <laughs> right? So that was important, first of all. Okay? Then we had to also distinguish between reboots and remakes, right? Where a remake is actually remaking a story, like A Star, a star is Born is remaking a story. Whereas a reboot is trying to restart a franchise, Right? So it not may not necessarily be the same story. Ghostbusters by Paul Feig is a perfect example of this. It's not a remake of 1984's Ghostbusters. It is another Ghostbusters movie in a, and it's a kind of its own thing, right? In a completely different universe starting trying to start a franchise. Yeah? Yes. It even I think actually says Ghostbuster Core at the very beginning, trying to create this this um, universe of different movies, right? So that was really important rules uh, to distinguish. I found out there's a lot of horror remakes out there. Apparently not a lot of people are writing good horror. Yeah. Or people don't want to buy horror stories. And there's a lot that you won't find on this list, like uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Rob Zombie's Halloween, The Hills Have Eyes... You know, there's there's a number of wax museum, uh, right? What House of wax, called? House of wax, <laughs> wax with Paris Hilton, right? <laughs> right. Now there are a couple choice horror movies that were remakes that you may hear about in a little bit, but on the whole, there's a lot of crap out there, and there's a lot of crap out there remakes in general. In fact, we found a lot of occasions where we liked the original more than the remake, didn't we? Yes, I found that. You know, when I started making my list, I thought we were including old and new and you know comparing mm-hmm. but that's that's not what we're doing no <laughs> so no. i was totally screwed right um, and had to work really hard to complete my list because i did have more of the old ones that i loved more it was very difficult to then rearrange my list because i found that i was liking originals more than remakes and it was very rare that i you know comparing the two Mm-hmm. It was very rare that I enjoyed the remake more. 
Right. So this became a much more challenging list and exercise than expected. But guys, right? this took all day. And, and there's actually a lot that you hadn't seen before, right? So you've never yeah. seen The Magnificent Seven, which is a remake of Seven Samurai. You've never seen The Fly. But I have seen Seven Samurai. You've seen Seven Samurai, right. Yeah. But you've never seen David Cronenberg's The Fly, which is a remake of Vincent Price's The Fly. And there's, there's a lot of other examples, right? Yeah, so I had not seen Let Me In, which was a remake of Let the Right One In. Right. But you did catch up on, on that one. We'll see I did if, manage to catch up on that one. But there we'll were see if some that, gets included, that but. I just didn't have time for, guys. It's right. just very busy. Right. So that, that was also a factor as well. So with that said, unless there's any other notes that you want to make about this whole exercise here, uh, what, what did end up being on your number 12? My number 12 ended up being the Carrie remake. Oh, 23. 2013. The original was 1974. I'm a sucker for Chloe Moretz, and this is the only horror film <laughs> that's featured on here. And, you know, it, it was just, it was an interesting interpretation of the mother, too. I, it was a Julian Moore. Yeah, yeah, that's that was right. Mom. Yeah. So I, I also like those two women, and those two women together yeah, was yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. I have a crush on Chloe Moretz. I, I will watch anything she's in, I will mm. give it a try. And I ended up liking. I'm a fan too. I ended up liking this version. Did you Did you end up liking it more than the original? Yeah, I felt Ooh. like the. Well, that's a hot take right there. Oh, okay. Go ahead. <laughs> it's been a while since I saw the original, but I felt like, I felt like the you know the the new one made more sense to me. Are we talking about spoilers? Not usually, because um, you know some people might want to check out our favorite movies. Well, go ahead and check it out, uh, especially if you're a girl and, you know, maybe you didn't know that menstruation was going to happen to you and you can see how it was dealt with in this film. Well, that's that's not much of a spoiler, because, to be fair, because that's the opening scene of uh, both both movies, right? I thought it happened later. <laughs> no, it, okay. it, literally in the original, it's like happening during the opening credits. Mm. Uh, the showers and uh, it's worth noting by the way that that version that you're speaking of was directed by Kimberly Pierce mm. who we've talked about in a previous episode briefly anyway in our F-rated episode or episode about women directors uh, she's the one who directed Boys Don't Cry in the late 90s mm. did you see that one no. with Hilary Swank that made Hilary Swank a star no okay well you should definitely check that out if you liked Carrie which is ad uh, admittedly a more Hollywood production. Um, you should check out uh, Boys Don't Cry. I guess I did forget to say that Carrie is about, you know, a girl coming, you know, going through puberty and she knows nothing about what's about to happen to her actual physical body and she has, uh, there's some paranormal stuff that gets involved with mm -hmm. her the process of her puberty and her mother is uh, unfortunately... I, I don't know what the correct word for this is, but she's... she's extremely she's conservative Christian. To the point that it's very unhealthy. So that's what you're getting yourself into. It's, it's worth watching. So there you go. What's your number 12? Yeah. Anybody who's listening to this podcast who loves movies and loves movie discussion should see the original Brian De Palma, Carrie. My number 12... So this is interesting. I, I, I have to say I have a lot of remakes, uh, quite a few that I love, and, if, and, and quite a handful that I like. 
So my list kind of starts out with what I like and gradually gets into what I love. Because I did have a challenge finding like a full 12 that I absolutely loved. And I played yeah. around with the bottom three quite a little bit before I landed on um, my final list. It, it included a possible tie between The Fly, uh, David Cronenberg's The Fly, and The Magnificent Seven. Um, which I didn't end up land- going with. Uh, I ended up going with instead The Departed. Directed by Martin Scorsese, which mm-hmm. is a remake of a Asian film called Infernal Affairs, which I have not seen, but I understand is, is tremendous. So Martin Scorsese, he's not a guy known for make, for doing remakes, but he does this film set in Boston rather than his normal New York City, and it that stars. That must have been fun for him. <laughs> yeah, well, it worked really well. You have a film with Martin Sheen, Jack Nicholson, Matt Damon, Leonardo DiCaprio. It's a hell of a cast. And it's incredibly tense and taut, uh, kind of crime thriller, where DiCaprio and Matt Damon respectively play moles in a, bo- a mob and in the FBI, right? If I remember correctly, it's the FBI. Maybe it's the police force. At any rate, um, there's a cat and mouse game in it, and, it, and it's incredibly tense and very suspenseful film, very well-crafted. I mean, it's Martin Scorsese. He rarely disappoints. Uh, maybe his his remake of Cape Fear, not a big fan of. So that's why I went with The Departed. Uh, great film. Uh, it was definitely worth seeking out if you haven't familiarized it. It is the one movie that earned him an Oscar also, unfortunately. That's what I landed on for my number 12. Shannon, what was your number 11? My number 11 is available to stream on Prime. It's Let Me In. Ah, so it did make your list. It did make the list. Um, and again, Chloe Moretz. <laughs> I can't resist her. She's awesome. So do, which one do I like better? The original. But this this uh, remake wasn't bad. A, a lot of it was pretty true to the original. Um, there were only a couple things that were different. The cinematography was even quite similar, except when it was not. You could tell when something was Americanized. Mm. And so... Uh, the famous pool scene, and I won't say more, <laughs> is completely differently shot, uh, differently lit and treated uh, compared to the original. And so the story is that there's this kid that's having a hard time. This boy, young boy, ha- is having a hard time. And he's dealing with some bullies at school. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, a new friend comes into his life. And it's a very interesting story, mm-hmm. a very interesting take on vampires. So what I did notice, though, I'm watching this movie and it's driving me crazy because I'm like, that boy, that's the bully, looks so familiar. Uh-huh. And it's actually the main guy in 13 Reasons Why. Oh, so, oh is it really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this movie was in, oh dear, I didn't write the date. I want to say 2013, but it's somewhere okay. thereabouts. Okay. And then 13 Reasons Why is like two years ago, so mm. uh, it makes sense. So that's what I have for you with Let Me In. Very cool. Also worth noting, uh, Let Me In was directed by Matt Reeves, who went on to direct Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and War for the Planet of the Apes also. Planet of the Apes doesn't count for this list, does it? The Tim Burton version, yes, that is an actual Nobody remake to touch that. of the original. But uh, the others are actually technically prequels to the Charlton Heston film. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So my number eleven is actually a Steven Spielberg film. 
for those who uh, may be wondering what well, what could this be? Steven Spielberg did a remake? What is this? It's a remake of a uh, film from 1943 called A Guy Named Joe. His film is called Always. It's from 1989. It stars Richard Dreyfuss, Holly Hunter, John Goodman, and Audrey Hepburn in her final role. I think we talked about this in our Steven Spielberg episode when we reviewed mm-hmm. Ready Player One. Yes. It did make my favorites there. I think not far from this spot either because it is minor. I think it's widely considered minor Spielberg. It's, it's a film that most people don't even remember exists. But I contend it's really one worth uh, seeking out. And you can find it on Netflix, so you can seek it out and uh, see what you, what everybody's been missing. I think it has fine performances by Dreyfus and, and the other leads, especially Holly Hunter. Holly Hunter, man. She's, at times, I think people forget how, how great she can be. She's actually fucking phenomenal. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's the case in this She's got uh, such film. a presence. It's, very, it's a very touching film, a very sweet film. I haven't seen a guy named Joe, but I wouldn't be surprised if I like this this version more, even if it's minor Spielberg. So uh, that's always, and it's on Netflix. Shannon, what's your number 10? My number 10 is The In-Laws, the one from 2003. Really? I have not seen the original, but I remember seeing this on TV and getting a kick out of it. It is a film that I'm just going to read the IMDb description. Okay. Right before his daughter's wedding, a mild-mannered foot doctor, which is a podiatrist, discovers that his future son-in-law's father is a freewheeling international spy. It's got Michael Douglas as well as... Isn't it Albert Brooks? Robin Tunney. We haven't seen her for a while since no. The Mentalist. Wow. Well, I haven't well, actually, watched no, there's The Mentalist. But... There's something after The Mentalist that she's in, but I can't remember what it is. I don't know, but I'm a Robin Tony fan. I've never seen The Mentalist, and I do not see enough of her. I agree. Yeah. So that's my that's my number over there. <laughs> my number. <laughs> my number. What is that? Ten. Okay. Cool. So I haven't I haven't seen that, but I'm very surprised to see that on uh, your list. Have you seen? You haven't seen the Peter Falk Alan Arkin one. I think um, we should. Seek that one out, too. See what we think. Sounds great. My number 10 is City of Angels. Oh, jeez. I don't want to talk about this film. Now, this is a film that almost didn't make my list. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, what almost made my list was the tie between The Fly and Magnificent Seven, which would have been technically a cheat, but I I don't know when I've ever had a, a tie. Just so you know, you're totally cheating right now because you mentioned it for a second time. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they didn't make my list because those are movies I like, but I really don't love. I... I kind of love City of Angels. You know, we talked about why. Uh, short of uh, a five-minute scene in the entire film, uh, this film is actually really, really damn good. It's really, really beautiful. It it uh, captures the beauty of life so well. Is it as great as its original film by Vin Vendor's uh, Wings of Desire? No, it doesn't have the artistry that is in the the original film, which is, I think, a canonical film and is all has a Criterion release and everything. You'll never see a Criterion release of City of Angels. But it does have great performances by Nick Cage and Meg Ryan and one of, I feel, her last great performances. You have Andre Braher, which I know you love, and 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 the guy who played Andy Sipowitz in NYPD Blue, whose name is Dennis Farina. 
if I remember correctly. You know, he great cast. I I I love this movie, and it has a really great soundtrack as well. City of Angels is the movie from I think 1998, I believe. We talked about it in our 1998 uh, episode as well. Yes, I had bitter feelings about those five minutes. Yes, you saw it for the first time, and uh, that was not pretty. <laughs> I completely freaked out at you. Yeah. I was so annoyed. Yeah. Anyway, my number nine is The Birdcage with Robin Williams, Hank Azaria, Diane Wiest. It's the 1996 version. Oh, yeah. Yep. There's, so there's so much talent in here. This is the 1996 film. Uh, the original was 1978, and I'm not even going to try and pronounce it but it's the french version of the the bird right right. it's the le cage folly or something like that see i'm not even gonna try (laughs) don't don't worry i'll be the one the ugly american okay all right that's fine so a gay cabaret owner and his drag queen companion agree to put up a false straight a straight front so that their son can introduce them to his fiance's right-wing moralist moralistic parents and hilarity ensues. It's uh, just yeah. really, really fun. But then you've got, it's just, it's so crazy. You've got these really uptight parents. And, you know, uh, you've got Robin Williams and his partner. And there's all this flamboyancy and drama and fake eyelashes from here to, like, kingdom come. And it's just really fun. That That is a, that is a very creative and cool pick. I'm sure a lot of people will be right with you with that one. For me, my number nine pick is 13 Assassins. Now, this is uh, a remake of uh, 13 Assassins from, I think, 1940? No, 1960s. I can't remember anymore. But here's here's the thing. This is directed by Takashi Miike, who's known for really brutal cinema. And the first 30 minutes uh, of this film are the most brutal, as it establishes this evil lord that is being targeted for assassination. The final 45 minutes of the film is an incredible display of mostly practical effects in an ongoing battle of claning swords kicked off by an incredible opening salvo that is bordering on bonkers, but absolutely amazing. When I named 13 Assassins the best film of 2011, I wrote... The attention to detail is also partly what makes this film the achievement of the year. Mike explained in an interview that he thought every samurai should have their own fighting style. Therefore, every single sound their swords make during battle was distinctly different. I'm going to repeat that. Every sword they make during battle was distinctly different because of their fighting styles. That's detail, man. Also, the dialect the samurai speak is one that younger Asian audiences would find unfamiliar since it is what was spoken over a hundred years ago. So, not since Akira Kurosawa have they made a film like 13 Assassins, and it is clearly a movie that if you're a fan of Seven Samurai, you're going to likely enjoy this film, and you can find it on Hulu. My number eight is The Jungle Book from 2016, the live-action version. Oh, I almost uh, had that on my list. Oh, you did? Oh, well, here we go. Now we all know this story. We know that Mowgli, the human that lives in the jungle, is 
forced to flee the jungle, the only home he's ever known because he was raised by wolves, because Shere Khan the tiger is coming and he uh, stumbles across several different kinds of animals and shenanigans with Baloo, mm-hmm. the bear. Played by who, Bill Murray. Yeah, who's a very free spirit. And then you've got... <laughs> The, the parental figure, Bagheera, the panther, mm-hmm. played by Ben Kinsley. Oh, yeah, that's right. And we've got Idris Alba as Shere Khan. We've got Lupita Nyong'o as Raksha. We've got Scarlett Johansson as Ka, which was like, oh, that was a good choice. And then King mm. Louis is Christopher Walken, Walken that's right, yeah. which totally freaking makes sense. Mm-hmm. So they casted everything really well. Sometimes people don't, you know, sometimes when they go from the animation to a live action, yeah. it's not always cast very well. Sometimes it's hit and miss, but mm-hmm. I feel like the entire cast for this particular movie was spot on. I also love the translation because I had seen the movie Mowgli, which was like a live action version of Jungle Book. Huh, I don't think I've seen that. It was years and years ago, like 92 or something. Interesting. Uh, somewhere around there. And I remember seeing that and being like, oh, cool, we get to see what this would be like in live action because, of course, growing up in South Africa, visiting the lion farm all the time. You know, it's, it's not hard to imagine what it would be like. I mean, mm. realistically speaking, the wolves are not going to raise you guys. Neither are the tigers or the bears or okay. the panthers. So I really enjoyed the live action version of that. It's It might possibly be my favorite, favorite film in the category of animation to live action. Well, it's definitely my favorite of uh, Disney's recent remakes of, of their animated classics, which yeah. I not in general a fan of we'll see how they do with the upcoming lion king and and other ones that they're doing man but, i hope they don't mess that up yeah but i was pleasantly surprised by by this jungle book film too it was i i feel like christopher walken's louis was the only clumsy uh, element oh, of the whole thing i thought thing. it was perfect the, well it was also the only songs in the whole movie pretty much and so it, it was a little odd but, uh, but I enjoy that film quite a bit. So that's, a, that's an awesome pick. Number eight for me is actually Dawn of the Dead by Zack Snyder from 2004. Now, this movie is on my list because of the amazing 13-minute opening. That almost made my list. No kidding. I didn't even know you'd seen it. We watched it together, didn't we? Oh, did we? we? Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, that's interesting. That's very cool. It's not the kind of movie I would think you'd be into. But I feel like that 13-minute opening is some of Snyder's best work. Uh, now, the reason why it's down on my list, and it almost got lower, is simply because the zombie baby. The zombie baby, man. That, that's, that alone drops it down to the bottom half of my list. But also, it, it does lack the consumerist message of the original 70s uh, film by uh, George Romero. Uh, and it's much more of a straightforward action horror. So not having, in, in my understanding, as much of a metaphor to it and just kind of being a more straightforward film, it's definitely inferior to the original. But it has its strengths. What it does, it does largely very well and has a great cast. And I enjoy it quite a bit. And the fact that the zombies run, that's fucking terrifying, man. Oh my god. I, You know, the only reason Walking Dead, like uh-huh. there's still people in that world, is right. because 
the zombies walk. Right, yeah. They don't yeah. run. Exactly. They're walkers. Right, exactly. So that's The Dawn of the Dead by Zack Snyder from 2004. We would all be screwed. <laughs> what is your number seven? My number seven is True Lies, which is a remake of an Italian film, I believe. Yes, I didn't know until this project that True Lies was a remake. I feel like we need to go watch that because I feel <laughs> like it would be two incredibly different films because if you have Schwarzenegger in the American version, uh-huh. pretty sure it's not going to be a true retell of the original. Well, I looked it up, and, it, and the, the, there are distinct plot differences, but the basics are are there in True Lies. Okay, well, just in case nobody knows about this film, Schwarzenegger is... He's, like, living the life when it comes to, you know, fighting terrorism. He's a secret agent. He goes around the world putting an end to terrorist dealings, and he <laughs> battles them all the time, and he's pretty much fearless until he discovers that his wife might be having an affair with him, and that's what turns his life upside down. Right. And that is Jamie Lee Curtis is the wife, and she is just, she's always fantastic. I love her so much. So to clarify, the original film is a 1991 French comedy called La Totale. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the way, good luck finding True Lies. It is not available to stream or rent anywhere online. I guess then what we can tell you to do is go to something like Half Price Books. Mm-hmm. Go to something, you know, maybe order it in yeah, DVD Amazon. Form. Yeah, I don't even yeah. think there's a Blu-ray. There's a DVD that's mediocre. You know, it, it's it's very odd, the treatment this movie has gotten because it is awesome we, we might talk more about that well i feel like it's like the the real version of uh what was the film we watched of his the other day where he was he only existed in films last action hero yeah it's like this is what it mm. is <laughs> gotcha my number seven is another horror remake this one by gory verbinski it is the rain from i think 2001 2002 and Shanna's getting up and leaving. <laughs> I think she did that last time I talked about it as one of my favorite movies of its year. This film stars Naomi Watts in one of her first star-making roles, if I remember correctly. I think this was around the time of Mulholland Drive also. I love Naomi Watts in this film. I love her character in this film. There's a strength that her character has in it. She's an investigative journalist. She's determined to figure out the secret of this tape, this VHS tape, which whenever people watch it, they get a phone call immediately afterwards letting them know, oh yeah, hey, you're going to die in seven days. It probably doesn't sound like that exactly. It's probably a little creepier. Uh, In fact, it is. And it's a very effective horror film. It's a very effective villain character, let's say. And... I've always loved this film. It's also a film set in the Pacific Northwest, which is very cool. It was filmed in some locales in the Pacific Northwest, which is very cool. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great film. I, I contend it's one of the best to this day. One of the best PG-13 horror films ever. That is The Rain, and it is my number seven. My seventh favorite uh, remake ever made. All right, number six for me is The Parent Trap. Now, I have not seen the original, but I really do like this remake. It is from... I don't like 1998. Yep, you're right. Spot on. 1998. It stars Lindsay Lohan as the twins. So, you know, she's just doubling up. 
And <laughs> we've got Natasha Richardson, Dennis Quaid, mm-hmm. Lisa Ann Walter, Elaine Hendricks, and a couple other people. So the if you have been living under a rock and were never a child and you've never seen this film, this is the film where there are twins and the parents were together and upon the twins' birth, each parent took a twin and separated. One ended up in England and one ended up in America and it turns out these kiddos go to the same summer camp in America and that's when they discover that they are twins. Worst parents ever but what we're going to gloss over that in the i know it's just you would not that would <laughs> right. not happen nowadays yeah 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 you yeah. can't even take your you know you can't bring a kid into america or take it out of america right. without like birth certificates and well, parental permissions right. and well at anyway. any rate but like, it's there's fun things that happen and they try to get movie. the parents back together yeah well you know birth parents questionable as that Plot device is in that movie. Lindsay Lohan. It's a lot Lohan's of fun. So cute to and watch. she is absolutely. Yeah. That's a fun pick. My sixth favorite film, uh, sixth favorite remake, I should say, is His Girl Friday, which is remarkably available on Amazon Prime. Freaking love that film. I I do too. It, uh, Cary Grant, of course, hilarious. This is a very dialogue-driven comedy. Yeah, uh, where uh, the comedy is comes mostly in the fast talking banter that happens between Rosalind, I believe it's Rosalind Russell and Cary Grant. Yeah, and of course, you're right, Rosalind. Cary Grant is trying to he's very manipulative, right? His ex who he used to work with, she's leaving the the journalist life, getting married. She wants to leave it all behind for this this He's not marriage. actually being a stand-up gentleman or decent no. human at all. So he, he, he loves her, and he's trying to manipulate her into coming back, right? Coming back into their, his world. And so he comes after, up with one fast-talking scheme after another, getting her to chase after this big story with this guy who's going to get executed, right? So... Uh, this is this is borderline screwball. It's a hilarious movie. It's a movie where you do have to pay attention to the dialogue to really catch why it's so funny and witty. It is a remake, I believe, of a film called The Front Page, which I have not seen uh, myself. But what was unique about His Girl Friday is it turned one of the original characters into a female and there, thereby changed the, dy- the dynamic of the film and the entire motivation of the film, I think to great effect. Uh, I love both leads. Um, This has always been kind of a favorite of mine. And so is my sixth favorite film, uh, sixth favorite remake. My next film, my number five, is The Mummy from 1999 with Brendan Fraser and uh, Rachel Weisz. Completely different uh, movie. John Hanna, Arnold Fosluer, who is... (laughs) Fosler, he's actually from South Africa. Arnold Vosloo. Arnold Vosloo. Who eventually became Darkman after Liam Neeson was Darkman. Okay, so moving on. Sorry. (laughs) Mm -hmm. An American serving in the French Foreign Legion on an archaeological dig at the ancient city of Hamanaptra. Oh my god, there's a lot of syllables in there. Accidentally awakens a mummy that wreaks havoc on him and his crew. And you know what? This is a stupid film, 
but it's stupid funny and I need to watch it again to see if it actually offends me <laughs> um, given my life experience now but when I was a kid you know when this first came out I thought this was fucking awesome and it was one of the first movies that came out on DVD so we watched it over and over again and it was one of the first that had commentary so oh we, my. Even, we even watched that we were like commentary what the hell is this What's your number five? Did you say where that's uh, available to stream? It's available on HBO now. Oh, okay. Well, fantastic. So that's definitely worth noting. I'm curious if the if the CGI is any... any. I bet it's absolutely horrific. Oh, God. That movie. Um, <laughs> it my, was good at the time. My, my number five... I'm just <laughs> moving on, man. My number five... Look, it's it's it's... The original isn't great either. I will give you that, but I'm just going to move on. The number five, my number five, is Little Shop of Horrors, directed by Frank Oz, the musical with Rick Moranis, Steve Martin, I think Bill Murray's in it, John Candy. There's a whole bunch of people in this thing. I love this movie. I love its opening number, Downtown. Downtown is so damn good. There's so many other really great songs. I think the voice of Audrey too, the giant pl- alien plant that wants to eat everybody, is actually voiced by, if I'm not mistaken, like one of the four tops or something. I can't. Oh, I'm, I can't believe my memory is a little fuzzy on this. But it, it, you know, he adds he adds a certain like '60s doo-wop like scening group credibility to this whole. It's really fun. You know, fun, 60s set production. And, uh, you know, Steve Martin is a bit of a, a, a jerk. But everybody, just about everybody who gets a comeuppance in the the plant's jaws deserve it. <laughs> but the songs are great. The songs are great. Rick Moranis is great. I absolutely adore this movie. Uh, I'm not sure that I'm one of those people that prefer the alternate original ending which is a lot darker to what we actually get but it's a lovely film and I have seen the original which starred Jack Nicholson Roger Corman film this is by far better in my opinion so uh, that's 1986's Little Shop of Horrors my fifth favorite remake Shannon what is your fourth favorite remake my fourth favorite remake is Godzilla from 2014 now I had seen the Godzilla from like the 90s Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. yes. So I'm I'm good with this one, the 2014 version. Okay. Uh, it's it's got you know Aaron Taylor, CJ Adam, CJ Adams, Ken Watanabe, Brian Cranston, Elizabeth Olsen. Really, those are my favorite ones. And Sally Hawkins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know the world, according to IMDb, the world is beset by the appearance of monstrous creatures, but one of them may be the only one who can save humanity. Uh-huh. And that kind of sets up for the film that's coming next year. Yeah. What is that yeah. one called again? God, this, is a, this is very interesting because yeah. before I answer that question, you had the original film, Gohira, mm-hmm. which, you know, 1954. And then you had the American version of that film. Which was total crap. <laughs> called Godzilla, King of the Monsters, which was that movie. Oh, oh. Only okay. it has Raymond Burr, better known to American audiences as Perry Mason, integrated into it as a guy who I recall was in a building observing what was happening. Right? So they integrated a couple scenes with Raymond Burr into the, into the original Japanese movie. Right? So this next movie is a nice callback to that because it's called 
Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Ah, okay. Yes, that trailer looks freaking phenomenal. Yeah, oh my god. Oh my gosh. Jaw on floor. We're going to have so much fun with that. Yeah, yeah. That's an awesome pick. Almost made my list as well. Not a great movie, but certainly a lot of fun. I enjoy it. My fourth favorite, get this, King Kong. Really, that's my third favorite, so let's just get on in with it. So it's Peter Jackson's 2005 yeah. film. With Jack um, Black. And... Originally seemed like a terrible idea why remake 1933's great classic M.C. Cooper film. Well, it's because... Because we can. Well, it's not just that. See, the great thing is some remakes are, are going to replace the original. This one is honoring the original, and it goes big, right? Oh, this is this is a good example of glitzy remake done well. Yes, I would argue that. Murder um, on Orient Express, no. Right. King Kong, yes. There is an epic intent with this, right? Every act of the film is an hour long. And it never, to me, feels bloated in a bad way or unnecessary or that it drags. Every act has its purpose and is extremely effective in its execution even the reimagining of skull island is incredible and chilling at times right this is done so well and the one that they made like two years ago was absolute bullshit skull island that was bullshit very silly movie i would not blame anyone for thinking of that as a guilty pleasure it's but bullshit. not a great movie <laughs> king kong the uh, is available on netflix and mm -hmm. it is just so beautiful to watch. I, I really love the relationship between Naomi Watts and King Kong. Yes. Mm -hmm. That didn't seem to exist in Skull Island. No, no. Uh, Brie Larson was the surrogate, so to speak. Not the same character, though. Mm. But there, that, there's that kind of a thing okay. there, but not the same. But yes, and most of the CGI actually holds up. Is Peter Jackson doing anything in the future? Is I... he done? do not know what he's up to but i will say that my third favorite remake is true grit by the cohen brothers i still have not seen that but you know you say cohen brothers and i'm like why the fuck haven't i seen that because it's a western and you don't uh, like westerns yeah so this is a film that uh, you know originally was made iconically with john wayne i think this is superior to the original film Jeff Bridges plays Rooster Cogburn, John Wayne's character, and Haley Steinfeld came onto the scene in one of the best female characters and the best version of Hattie. Uh, Maddie? Hattie? I can't remember her name very well right now. But uh, Maddie Ross, I think is her name. Exceptional character. She's a character who will, is just smart enough to be able to outsmart and take you to task if you're trying to take advantage of her or be an ass in any way. Matt Damon kind of plays a little bit of a buffoon in it. It is gorgeously shot and, and just one of the best westerns easily of the decade, if not of the top of the past 20 years. I absolutely love True Grit. I found it stunning and worth seeking out. It's my third favorite remake. My number two is always. Really? You yeah. like it that much? I, I really... It's very difficult to like romances as you get older and you know more about the realism of life. 
Uh-huh. I, I like things that are more authentic, uh-huh. which is why I really loved A Star is Born. Uh-huh. I feel like that was true because it's really high and it's really sure. low. Sure, yeah, it's, yeah. You know, yeah. But I feel like always is a good example of like, well, if my, you know, if my loved one died, like this is what I would want. I would want them, I would want to be able to feel their presence mm. and not in like a, a ghost movie <laughs> okay. version. Yeah. Patrick Swayze. Yeah, yeah, not Patrick Swayze. Like yeah. this is the kind I'd want. Yeah. You know? Interestingly enough, well, one came out one year after the other. Ah. Yeah. 1989 well, and then 1990. So, okay. Always was first or yeah. ghost? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was always, always first. popular at all? I want to say it was not. I, oh. I, I, I'd so have to look it Patrick up. Patrick Swayze, you see. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, you had Richard Dreyfuss. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. Is, he is no Swayze, that's for sure. Um, and I believe that's on Netflix, isn't it? Did yes, you say? Okay. yes. Cool. But uh, I get what you mean. The grief in that is very well depicted. Um, my, well, she's so feisty, too. Honey right. Hunter, I love her. My second favorite remake is John Carpenter's The Thing. Which is not a movie you're a big fan of, I know. There's... I'll just sit here for it. Right. And, and I understand uh, why. We don't have to get into why. But this is a remake of a Howard Hawks film called The Thing from Another World. Which is basically a, a lumbering guy in prosthetic makeup, right? It's effective for what it is for 1950s sci-fi horror. But this film really took it to another level with a, an incredible cast that d- does include Kurt Russell in one of his most iconic 80s roles. You know, up there with uh, Escape from uh, New York and, and Jack Burton of Big Trouble in Little China. All of these coincidentally are John Carpenter movies. I'm, I'm, I'm name checking. There is definitely something there with Kurt Russell's career. But it is hands down one of the most crackling, suspenseful, imaginative, creative sci-fi horror films ever made with incredible practical gore effects. And it is just, it is an iconic, iconic film. And any cinephile is, is definitely missing out if they haven't seen John Carpenter's The Thing. It is hands down probably one of the 10 best films of the 80s so how can it not be my second favorite remake ever Mm -hmm. made shanna what is your favorite remake of all time so you know how i said a lot of you know the originals were my favorite Mm -hmm. well i was so stoked to find out that his girl friday was a remake Ah, so here it is at the top there you go I really like Cary Grant. He's uh-huh. like one of my ultimate favorites. This film, it doesn't make me as happy as Arsenic and Old Lace, uh-huh. but it, it gets me a little bit closer there. Yeah. So, and yeah. you've already spoken about it, but I like that they're kind of, <laughs> speaking of the realism of relationships, this happens sometimes in relationships too, where we're kind of like reel each other in and we're like talking really fast. And mm-hmm. that's when it's really <laughs> exciting, but also like, fuck, where is this conversation going? <laughs> this right. is going to take us down a rabbit hole. This isn't good. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes it can be used in like this really fun comeback way. And I really like that they do that in His Girl Friday. But mm. just, you know, don't be a manipulative fuck. So right. just to clarify. <laughs> uh, I'm glad I showed you that film. And that is uh, your favorite film. Not your favorite remake. So for me... I think it would make sense if the most favorite remakes are the ones that are better than the original film, right? 
And I've had a couple of examples of that with True Grid and The Thane and King Kong. And I would say The Rain even is slightly better than the Japanese version, right? My number one favorite remake is not one I can speak to because I haven't seen the original, but I do absolutely love it as a remake. It is hilarious and fun. One of the most fun films this director has ever made. It is True Lies by James Cameron. The spy action comedy, which also, by the way, stars Tom Arnold as the comic relief sidekick and Tia Carrere as the femme fatale. I've, we've talked about this uh, probably in our 1994 episode as one of my favorite films of that year. And I think we had another occasion to talk about True Lies. I can't remember. I don't think we've done a favorite James Cameron episode or anything, but... James Cameron, I mean, James Cameron does a spy movie, man. I mean, when he does a, a, a sci-fi horror movie, a, a sci-fi action movie, historic fiction movie, he always nails it every single time, right? Like, he's, he's Avatar's not a great movie, right? But uh, that's kind of, you know, it's not a terrible movie either, you know? True Lies is just... You know, uh, another knock it out of the park film for him. I've always loved it, and I wish it was easy for people to be able to to share in the the joy that is True Lies. So that's my favorite uh, remake. I don't know what else to say about it. Uh, but I am curious, what is your favorite remake? Email us at thegibsonreview at gmail dot com. Shanna, before we talk about our next episode, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me at shannapaxton.com, S-H-A-N-N-A-P-A-X-T-O-N, and from there you'll find my Instagram. But if you want to go there right now because it's fun, shanna underscore paxton. Awesome. Go to thegibsonreview.com for more uh, episodes, past lists, past film fave articles, past reviews, past, 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 past. Um, it's all there on thegibsonreview.com. Go to Facebook slash The Gibson Review to find links to these episodes as well as mini reviews and third-party links. And uh, go to uh, iTunes and SoundCloud to subscribe to these episodes. Leave us a review so more people can find us. Uh, let us know what you think. Be constructive, please. Thank you very much. And go to uh, FlickChart, The Gibson 99. Uh, to follow me there with all the movies I have seen. I need to do some updating, though. All right, so next time on The Movie Lovers, I think we're going to review Damon Chazelle's third film, First Man, which comes out the weekend after recording this, which, by the way, will be the weekend before this episode is published. So we'll be a couple weeks behind, uh, so to speak, when we when we publish this. But I think that's probably the next best choice because I'm not sure. Because I should cry more. Well, because it, here's I the cried thing. for the the what the hell was that? Stars Born. No, before that. I don't remember. This right is now. us. This is. Oh us yeah, people. yeah. Life, life itself. Because apparently yeah. I didn't cry enough there. I didn't right. cry enough here. We're gonna right. cry later too. Well, here's the thing. I don't think we're gonna be able to see Muriel Heller's movie with Melissa McCarthy. Can you ever forgive me? I think that will be a limited release, probably only showing in Seattle. We won't have access to it, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure about the hate you give, if the timing of that's going to work out either. But I can be sure that we can see the first man, 
and have enough time to record um, and, and uh, not have any problems scheduling. So we'll check that out. Plus, we're fans of Damien Chazelle's first two movies, Whiplash and La La Land. So let's see what he can do with historical drama. be great. Yeah, yeah. And he's with uh, Ryan Gosling once again. So, And you're a fan of Claire Foy uh, from The Queen. So, Yeah, I really like what she has to say in the trailer. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think it's going to be a good experience. I just, it would be great if I could be in thrill state and not drama state. Mm, yeah, I know. I know. We'll get there. We'll get there. Don't worry. Uh, but this is, of course, peak drama season. We'll also probably go back to our year-by-year countdown with film faves because i don't think we can do like favorite astronaut movies or anything like that right so probably go back to 1991 for film fave until then keep loving the movies this is jeff and shanna saying bye-bye